Hey, morning, church. How you guys doing? And uh, well, thank you for masking up today, and uh, that way you keep the health department off of me for a week. Thank you for doing that, and I appreciate it so much. Uh, those of you that uh, you know, if you're being rebellious, I'll have you come down here with me and deal with that. Okay? How about that? You can escort me to court and all those things, okay? Hey, this is going to be temporary, though. Just uh, hang in there, and uh, we will get past the goofiness of some of this stuff and hopefully get back to, to normal here before too long. Um, do your part. Stay well and safe, and uh, continue to serve the Lord. These are great days to serve the Lord. People live in a state of uncertainty, and... Um, People have to be confronted with the reality that it's appointed unto men once to die, and after that, the judgment. And um, did you know that you have an appointment with death yourself? And I will promise you that there is no mask that will stop it. The days of your life were written in the book before one of them came to be, the Scripture says. Now, that's not saying that you should be reckless and stupid, but it is saying that uh, God has got this, so I want you to rest in Him. Okay, I want you to rest in Him. Uh, it's not in your own ability that uh, is going to keep you safe. Do what is sensible and right, but uh, let be, be sure that you're trusting the Lord. Um, I want to talk to you today about the urgency of evangelistic prayer. And so you have your Bibles and you're in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now remember, this is a letter that's written to a church. And uh, Timothy is uh, going to be their pastor, as the pastor of that church, shepherding that church. And uh, it had been infiltrated by uh, some leadership that was not teaching the truth and was leading people astray. It looks like there's a combination of some things going on. One of them uh, seems to be that trying to add good works as a condition uh, of salvation. That seems to be a popular one with people. And uh, trying to add, you've got to be good. If you're a good person, then you'll get to go to heaven. And, and then add some Jesus onto that, and you, you're sure to get in, which is a false teaching. And so that, that seems to be uh, what was going on. Some, some uh, hinting at we have some secret knowledge that uh, your pastor would not have. Listen to us. That's always a popular one. Uh, so, yeah, we have, we found the answer, your, your, your church and your pastor, they're struggling around in the dark ages. And so people are gullible to that. They always, uh, take, take that and run with it. Um, so that, that seems to be another one. Some were teaching that the resurrection had already passed and, uh, that there was no resurrection after this life. And, um, so lots of, lots of messed up things. So this is why you have Paul giving a charge to Timothy and saying to him, uh, you got to go clean this mess up. And Paul had already started the process. And uh, so he was telling Timothy, there's nothing to do but extract those leaders. You can't leave that in place. It seems to me that there must have been some teaching going on about many ways to get to God. Because uh, later in the second chapter, uh, Paul proclaims, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so it must have been that there was some teaching going on that there are many ways to get to heaven. Uh, that Jesus was just one of the good ways, but there are other ways. And uh, so lots of problems here. And so Timothy has been sent to address these things and to clean it up. But the, the main problem is just false doctrine, just bad teaching of the Bible. And um, the Bible can be used as a, as a way to manipulate people and to use it for your own purposes. So some bad uh, interpretation of the scripture, bad approach to the Bible, and uh, it was being used by some false teachers. Remember that um, when you look at cults in the world and crazy groups of people, a lot of times they use the Bible uh, and, and they will take gullible people, people that are just not learned in the Bible and the scripture, and uh, they will manipulate people with that. So recognize that just because somebody says they're teaching the Bible doesn't necessarily mean they're teaching the Bible. They're using the Bible, but they're not teaching the Bible. Those are two different things. So uh, that must have been happening in this church at Ephesus, and so Timothy has been sent there to clean it up. And so Paul says, I charge you, I've given you this command, it's a military command, you need to obey this order that you go in and, and you take care of this. Then he starts in chapter 2, and he says, now here's the first step. 
And in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, first of all, and you would wonder, what's the first thing that Timothy needs to do? What is his first strategy? And the first strategy is that he prays. And the praying is to lead uh, the people of God to pray. This is not just Timothy in his private praying. This appears to be public praying. And they're praying, he's leading them to pray together. So there's going to be some prayer. And so prayer is the first thing. Now, I wanted to say this to you. Uh, I've been a, a practitioner of prayer for a long time. And many of you have as well. I, I want to just go ahead and, and confess something to you. I, I do not know how prayer works. I, I just really don't. Uh, my wife is in the prayer room uh, this morning, and she's praying for us. And she and another lady, and they're praying for uh, us this morning and for me. Um, I covet that. I know that God answers prayer, but I, I really don't know how it works. Um, I think of this definition by John Bunyan. He was the writer of uh, uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Many of you know of that book, and you know about it. But he gives this, uh, I think, helpful definition of prayer. He says, prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit for such things as God has promised. I think every, every word of that is important, but that, that's his definition. It's sincere, it's sensible, it's affectionate, it's pouring out of the heart and soul to God through Christ that is you had to be connected in a relationship with Christ for it to work. It's in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit. And it's for, what do you pray for? Such things as God has promised. That's what you ask for, the things that God has promised. Not anything and everything, but the things that God has promised. Now, I want to also say this uh, to you about prayer. Normally, I don't feel like praying. I know that it's probably a shocker to you. But uh, a lot of times, I just don't feel like it. Um, I feel like doing a lot of other things, but I, don't, I, I rarely feel like praying. I, I hate it when God brings me to the place that I feel like praying, because usually it's not a good thing going on in life. Uh, so I normally don't feel like praying. You know what I do when I don't feel like praying? I pray about that. Yeah, so praying is hard. And, um, and, and it's a discipline because you have to choose. There are things that I could be doing rather than praying. And the other things always seem urgent. There's always a, a, a phone call or 25 to answer. There are always, uh, I think I, I went to the office the other day, there are 57 emails to work through. And, and that's not counting the spam, you know. And so you're, you, you've always had, they're always, and everybody's problem is always urgent and all of those things. And so there are always things on, on the docket that would be easier to just approach rather than prayer. Prayer's hard and to stay concentrated and focused in prayer is difficult. And other Christians around you really don't promote prayer. They don't want you to pray because they don't really know what to do with that. So they think that you know, they need to, you know, talk to you about something. So praying is, is something that, that pushes them out. And so people don't really like that. And those of you that have small children, do you ever try to pray? They're just really, my, my wife used to go to the bathroom to pray. And the kids would still stick their hands under the door. What are you doing in there, mommy? And so, you know, so I'm praying, you know, and step on those fingers, you know, watch it, kid, you know, so... But it's just, everything interferes with prayer. So I believe this is why Paul is saying here in this first verse of the second chapter, I urge that. This is an urgent priority. And if you look at the context of, of these verses, and we're not going to take, we'll just take the first four today. But if you take the context here, uh, verse four tells us who desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so the context here is really evangelistic praying. That is praying for the salvation of people. This is one of the hardest things to do. It's, it's easier to pray that you, you, know, you get your job. It's easier to pray that your electric bill won't be too high. It's easier to pray that 
you know, you, you get in the school, get accepted to the school you're going to get accepted to. It, it's, it, it's easy to pray about those kind of things. It's hard to pray evangelistically because you get up from that prayer and you don't see any results that day. The evangelistic praying is never immediate results. You, you rarely see that. And you recognize the fact that you, other people are also praying uh, the same thing. So there are lots of people that are involved probably in evangelistic prayer for some of the people that you know in your life. So evangelistic praying is tough. But, but the Bible here tells us that in any church and in the ministry of any pastor, it must be a priority. So look at the, the priority of evangelistic prayer. Verse 1, he says, first of all, then, there's your priority. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So here you have the substance of this kind of praying. What is the substance? Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. Now, the first three words could possibly be synonyms. That is, they could all possibly sort of mean the same thing. But there is a, a, a slight variance of, of meaning of the words. Supplication means you address personal needs. What are the personal needs of the person? And this hints at something. If you're going to pray for people that do not know Jesus, you need to know something of their needs. There, there's a personal involvement here. And so as much as it is possible for you, you need to be personally involved in their life if you can. So supplication, you address their personal needs. Prayers are just simply asking. Intercession has to do with interference. It's not just praying on behalf of someone. In evangelistic praying, you are interfering with their insistence on going to hell. You are the only one perhaps in their life, maybe there are a few others, that are willing to interfere with what they seem determined to do. They appear to be determined to live a godless life. They appear to be determined to spend eternity in hell. They appear to be determined to just feast upon sin. And you are going to interfere. You're going to interfere through prayer. You're going to interfere with their journey toward a devil's hell in which there is no possibility of escape. Then the last one is thanksgivings. And it's a multiple kind of thing. Just thanking God for a lot of things about this person. Now I want to just stop here for a moment. And, and I want you to think about this. The people that you're praying for that are not Christians. Perhaps some of them are close family members. And so you have an affection for them. And, and you're praying for them. And so you have heart for them. And so you can thank God for them, right? You're saying to yourself, I, Lord, I, I thank you for my husband. I thank you for my wife. I thank you for my kids. Or I, I thank you for my cousin, you know, that lives down in Kentucky or whatever it is. And so you, you, you can thank God for that. But what about that person that lives on your street that is obviously not a believer in their behavior, action, and they're irritating? I have a whole row of those people. And I do not want to rehearse what it is that irritates me because it seems that word gets back around. But it's hard to thank God for them. I can pray for their salvation, fine. But actually thanking God for them is a different matter. And so in praying for those who are not saved, you have to come to the place where you can actually thank God for them. And thank Him for allowing them to be in your life. There's one person that does a certain thing in our neighborhood. And I can always hear it. And it's always at 1130 at night. And uh, I just have to let that be my alarm that, that makes me thank God for him. I don't know what else to do with that. Otherwise, I'm across the street and something bad happens then, right? So thanking God for that person. Can you thank God for people that are Muslims? 
Can you thank God for people who are lost and are confused by all of the social justice movement that's going on right now that appears to sound like it's something very good, but in essence it is something quite dark and sinister? And are you able to thank God for those people when you pray for them? Are you praying for their salvation? See, that's what a Christian does. And so the substance of our praying needs to include thanksgiving. Now, what is the scope? It says to be made for all people. All people. You need to pray for the salvation of everyone that you can think of. Now, this is not a good prayer. God, I pray that you'd save everybody. That's not a good prayer. Okay, we're talking about having a, a, a list of people that you pray for their salvation. Oh God, would you save this person? Would you bring this person to Jesus? Would you change their heart so they'll hear the gospel? So you're praying those kinds of things. You need to have a list of people that you're praying for specifically. And so you can add. Some people, you, you, you see people on television. You say, I'm just going to pray for their salvation. I don't know them, but I'm going to pray for them. And so you put them on your list. Now, here's the thing. The Bible says to, to pray uh, evangelistically for all people. So now let's dive into uh, something that is certain to hurt your brain. But what about the secret counsel of God in election? Oh boy. Now we're in a conundrum. Well, why are we to pray for everyone's salvation then? If only the elect are going to be saved in the end. If only the elect are actually going to go to heaven, only, only the elect are going to trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, then why pray for everyone? Well, this is plain and simple. You don't know who the elect are. That part is none of our business. Don't get hung up on the secret counsel of God from eternity past. Remember this about that. You were not there. You are here in space and in time. You work from that basis. You let God worry about all the eternal. We pray for everyone's salvation. Now it is true, as Jesus said, that many are called, but only a few are chosen. That is true. And we're reminded of that. But our prayers are to focus upon everyone that we know that is lost. Our praying is for the salvation of people. And our praying should go outside of the scope of our own immediate family. It should not just be praying for the salvation of our family members only, though we should pray for them. But I find that a lot of times the praying for the salvation of our family members is for our own comfort, not necessarily for the glory of God. It's hard to pray for people that you don't like it's hard to pray for people that you don't know very well. But we are the scope of our praying is to go outside of just our immediate family members. I would encourage you to learn to pray for the peoples of the world. Get, get the IMB app on your phone and it gives you a prayer request every day. And so pray for the, a lot of times you're like, I, Pastor, I can't even pronounce the names of these people, these people groups. Well, neither can I. A lot of times I just start with the first letter. God, I want to pray for the B people. I don't even know how to say the rest of this stuff. What does an X sound like in Mandarin anyway? I don't know. But Lord, they got 6 million people and 12 Christians. Father, I, I don't know what must be done, but... If you don't stir in the hearts and lives of those people, and if you don't send gospel tellers there, there is no hope. Would you? Would you work in a miraculous and mighty way among them? Even if it's not in my lifetime, even if I never see it, may it be for your glory, for your honor. See, I don't have to pray for 30 minutes about those kinds of things, but somebody needs to bring their names up before the Lord. So the scope of my praying has to expand outside of my own personal interests and get to the salvation of others. So the scope of it. So the priority of evangelistic praying. Paul said, first of all, this is the first thing I urge you to do this. And the urging here is an ongoing action. And so I urge you every day to do this. 
how do you overcome how do you overcome a lot of the problems that take place in a congregation let me give you a secret turn to missions and evangelism get the church's mind upon its purpose get the church involved in that which is its only purpose and that is that the gospel would go to every people group in the entire world and then the end will come get the gospel out and get the church's mind upon that so he tells Timothy do this this priority is this evangelistic praying help your people to do it I noticed that in our own congregation and Pastor Joe's been helping us with this that we have a little prayer strategy bless every home you can get that bless every home.com and it'll give you a little mission field of people to pray for, your neighbors, people around you, people you don't even know. And you can begin to pray for them by name. It's evangelistic praying. How do you pray for them? Just pray, God, open their hearts and minds. Now, some of you, uh, you're thinking, I, I don't really know what to say to the Lord if I'm going to pray for somebody evangelistically. Well, one of the things that, that I do at times is, uh, you know, I know that in John chapter 16, he tells us about the, the work of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 8, I, I just kind of pray verses 8 through 11 of John chapter 16 for people who are not saved. And the Bible says, when the Holy Spirit comes, He's going to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And I just pray, Lord, this person, I ask you that the Holy Spirit of God, you would cause the Holy Spirit, send the Holy Spirit to work in their heart and life. They do, not, they do not even know about their own sin. They don't even understand it. Open their eyes to what sin really is. Their sin. Lord, they don't know that they have to have righteousness. And they don't have it. And the only source of righteousness is you. Jesus, righteousness in their place. That's the only way that this is going to work. God calls them to trust upon Christ. And his righteousness in their place. Rather than them trying to earn this righteousness that they'll never earn. And then, Lord, judgment. Show them that judgment is coming. The people in our world are saying, oh, God doesn't judge people. Oh, God saves everybody eventually. Lord, help them to cut through all of that and see the truth. That judgment is coming. And if they do not come to Christ, then though they are condemned already, they will be condemned for all of eternity. In Jesus' name. And that's how you pray. You don't know what else to pray. Pray John chapter 16, verses 8 and following for them. Now, what is the power of evangelistic prayer? Now, look at verses 2 and 3. And as we're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2, the power of evangelistic prayer. He says, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. The power of evangelistic prayer. Notice its unstoppable reach. He says, for kings and all who are in high positions. All who are in places of authority. The gospel is for all kinds of people. That's the point here. The gospel is for all kinds of people. Even those people who are in the highest positions of authority in a nation. Even those who are leading the most powerful nation in the world. Their basic need is to bow to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so they need that. And you may be some of the only people praying that kind of thing for them. Now re remember this, that in Paul's day, the leader... Of the Roman Empire, which was the power of the world, was Nero. Nero was a homosexual. He was ruthless. He was a psychopath. And he becomes the murderer of Christians. He is the one who has Christians impaled upon stakes, poles, in his garden and has them lit on fire to use as a tiki torch during his parties. What does Paul say? Does he say, well, you know what we need to do as Christians? We need to protest. 
We need to protest this. We're not going to have it. You know what we need to do? We need to give out hats. Make Rome great again. We need to go on Facebook and just absolutely castigate any person that would dare to make our lives uncomfortable. Anybody that doesn't match our politics, we should go on and call them the Antichrist. That's what we should do. Isn't that the instruction that Paul gives to Christians? Doesn't he tell them to use social media as some kind of whip of judgment upon those who are ungodly? I don't think that's what he said. I think he said pray. Well, that doesn't sound very effective. Well, the gospel is for all kinds of people. Even for those like Nero, ruthless, psychopathic, paranoid, murderer. Paul didn't say pray for his removal from office. He said, pray for his salvation. Because church as a Christian, individual Christian, and as a congregation of Christians, we know that we serve a different kingdom that lasts forever. And that those who are in these temporary kingdoms, and I would remind you that the American kingdom is a temporary kingdom. It's only 250 years old. Lord of mercy, there are people in the Bible who live longer than that. You say, well, pa- Pastor, you're not patriotic. Oh, on contraire. That's my French. You, you don't judge me. I'm telling you the truth, though. And when you're going to put all your eggs in the basket of that which is broken anyway, you're going to find out there's not much left when you get to grandma's house. The kingdom of Christ is a kingdom that will never end. And we are told that in the end, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever, the Bible says. So our job as Christians is not to take the kingdom that is corrupt and try to turn it into something other than what it actually is our job is to see those who are in the corrupt kingdom come into the right kingdom that's our job and the funny thing about that is is when we focus upon that a lot of times the temporary kingdom suddenly begins to look a little more like the kingdom that we're going to but when we try by direct political power and means to coerce things And we're going to rally people to vote a certain way. And we're going to try to use politics as our tool of judgment. What we find is that we're drawn in to the same anarchist type of behavior, rebelliousness, bitterness, and anger that mirrors the rest of the world. And then we've lost our testimony. We have nothing to offer them. Paul said, pray for kings. And all who are in high positions. All. Not the ones you like. Just those. But all. How might the world be different. If Christians stopped. Relying on politics. To change the world. And instead turned their passion. And time to prayer. Let me ask you this one question. Let me ask you this. And I'm talking to Christians now. What if the wrong candidate gets elected president what will you do I want to I want to just ask you under the authority of the word of God I want to ask you to do something right now I want you to settle in your heart that you are willing right now to commit To thanking God for that person. Because the scripture says. Thanksgiving. Be made for all. For kings. And all who are in high positions. 
And Paul was speaking specifically about leadership that was anti-Christ and anti-Christian. And would you commit to praying passionately for his or her salvation? Would you just make a commitment right now, Lord? I have my preference in politics. I have my preference in leadership. I have my preference in policies that I think are right and that others are wrong. But above all of these things, I serve the King of Kings. And I am his servant. And you say to me that I am to pray for kings and all who are in authority. Would you give me the grace to thank God for Joe Biden? Would you give me the grace to thank God for Donald Trump? Would you give me the grace, whichever side you fall on, whoever it's going to be, would you give me the grace to thank you for that person every day? And not only that, to pray for his or her salvation. Would you, God, give me the grace? Because only a Christian can do that. I, I, I honestly don't think the atheists are doing that. I, I don't, I'm, I'm pretty sure Black Lives Matter people are not going to be doing that. I think this is the realm of the kingdom of God, and we're the ones to do that. That's us. And can you smile and be able to handle with peace the reality of the providence of God? And that God moves in mysterious ways, and we do not know why he allows certain things to happen. Now listen, my 403B has a preference. Brother Barack about killed me. So my, my 403B has a preference. I'm, I'm self-employed. I don't have anybody to lean on when I'm old. So I, I have a preference. But even in that, can I thank God no matter what? So I want to encourage you right now and just ask you, to make that commitment to the Lord. Where you are right now, just, Lord, I, I'm, I'm going to do this. The power of evangelistic prayer. I believe, Lord, in the power of evangelistic prayer more than I believe in the power of politics. I believe in that, Lord. And, and I'm going to show, Lord, I, by your grace, by your working in my heart, by your help, by your strength, I'm going to show it. And we're going to pray. And we're going to pray for whoever wins this thing, we're going to pray for them. We're going to love them. We can disagree with them politically, but we're going to love them. And we're going to pray for their salvation that they'd come to know Jesus. Because in eternity, we're not going to look back and go, well, you know what? I sure do wish they'd have finished that wall down on the border. I'll tell you what. Nobody's going to say that. In eternity, it's, it's just going to be the agony of those in hell and the glory of those in heaven. That's it. The rest of this is just training ground. It's just noise. It's not the end all. So I, I'm just trying to encourage you. Don't misplace your trust. You can't trust Nebuchadnezzar. It's an unstoppable reach. Also look, it's inevitable results. So we may lead, lead a peaceful and quiet life. Godly and dignified in every way. Would you like to live in a country where we had a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way? Would you like that? I, I sure would. Let me tell you how that can come about. Pray for the leaders that they would become followers of Jesus. I'll tell you how it doesn't work. When Christians join in with the crazies of this world and get connected with their anarchist types of actions and their rebellious attitudes. That should not mark, that should not be a characteristic of those who are in the kingdom of Jesus. That should not be what we are. We should be able, we should be standing there and there should be a calm around us. When everybody else is in a storm... There should be a calm emanating from our very presence. Why? Because we know how peace comes. And we know how to have a peaceful and quiet life. And it comes through the work of God and His kingdom advancing. Those of you who went to Sunday school today about the advancement of the kingdom. 
Society is changed through the salvation of sinners. Do you really believe that? If you really believe it, then commit it to prayer. Then follow the instruction of the book. The, the book here is very specific. This is how you do it. And so pray for those who are in leadership that they may come to Jesus. And when they come to Jesus, then we'll be able to also have a life that is peaceful and quiet and godly and dignified in every way. That will be the result in our society. But until that result is evidenced, Christians still should in the midst of the chaos be living lives that are peaceful and quiet and godly and dignified. Don't say anything to anybody that's not dignified. Whether it's remotely or in person. Don't do it. Just ask, before you push click, just ask yourself, is this dignified? Does this reflect the dignity of the one that I serve? You know, one of the problems that we've had, uh, at least I have had, with a president that's on Twitter too much is a lack of dignity that goes with the office of the president. Now, I'm, I'm not telling you how I'm getting ready to vote in November. This has got nothing to do with that. But I think that one of the shocking things for me in my lifetime, having walked through several presidential elections, is to see some of the things that are said on Twitter from probably the most powerful person in the world. And some of it just doesn't come across as dignified to me. And so it, it doesn't honor the office like I would like it to be honored. So having said that, let me also say to all of us who are Christians, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God is making his appeal through us. Be reconciled to God. That is the message of the ambassadors of Christ. And when we speak, whether it's on Twitter whether it's on Facebook, whether it's on Snapchat, whatever kind of platform that you're using these days, there should be a dignity that comes with that office. We're not looking for a fight. We're not looking for a brawl. We're looking for dignity. We're looking for peace. We're looking for godliness. And we know that the only way that that takes place is with the advancement of the kingdom of God. And so as a Christian, that's our responsibility. The government has been ordained by God and it has its responsibility. We cheer that on. We try to influence it by going and voting and all those things that we can do. But at the end of the day, we must remember as Christians that it is more important that we maintain the dignity of the office that we hold, which is ambassador of Christ, that we maintain that dignity of that office above all things so the power of evangelistic prayer its reach cannot be stopped and its results are inevitable now let's look at this the passion in evangelistic prayer verse 4 he says who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth now there's a passionate motive here God desires all people to be saved now oh boy we come back to a theological question if God wants everybody to be saved then how does this thing called election work? Is this universalism that if God wants it, God wills it, then God's will will be done, and so therefore everybody's going to be saved in the end. Is that the right interpretation of the Scripture? Or is this insincerity on God's part? Uh, only the elect are going to be saved, but he says here he wants all people to be saved. So is, this God, is God really being insincere? Well... My only job as a pastor is really to tell you about God. The rest of it, you just have to figure it out. But let me say this. Number one, we know this to be true about God. God takes no delight in the damnation of people. He takes no delight in that. In Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 11, God says, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God does not take delight or pleasure in the damnation of sinners. He sincerely has a desire for every person to come to him and to be saved. Secondly, however, 
Human beings are ruined by the fall of Adam. And the power of sin dominates our hearts. We are dead set against God. Our default setting is no to God. None will come to God unless God individually, supernaturally, touches the heart of that particular person. Nobody can blame God because they went to hell. People go to hell because they want to. They don't want God. Humans in their natural habitat don't want God. They want themselves. They want to be Lord of their own lives. They want to be God in their own lives. They want to make up their own rules. They want to live according to their own standards, their own philosophy of life. They don't want God's interference. And that's the way all of us are. Every person born in this world, we're all that way. And nothing, nothing at all will ever change that. Unless the Holy Spirit of God regenerates that heart and that heart is awakened and it sees Jesus in all of his glory and they sees Jesus for who he really is and they take that in as their own and God has done that work in their life and they turn from their sinfulness and they trust upon Jesus. But it's by a miraculous individual particular work of God in the individual's heart and life. Not anything the individual has done because we're all in the same boat of, of, of sinfulness and headed to hell. Everybody in the same boat. But God has chosen for some reason to work in the hearts of some. You say, well, God, he should do that for everybody. Oh, I know. Everybody gets a trophy. I know. That's just not what God has chosen to do. Get over it. God gets to decide now, maybe I'll give you an illustration, and, and maybe this will help you a little bit. Suppose Julie and I have decided we're going to adopt three children. We've got room in our home. Uh, we're trying to get rid of one, and so a bedroom's opening up soon. I may rent it out, but if not, we can use it. So we're going to adopt three children. And so the day goes, we, we go, and we... Uh, able to tour an orphanage, and we see there are 50 children there that need adopting. 50. I can genuinely say with a sincere heart, I wish I could adopt all of them. But my wife and I have chosen to adopt three. And we choose our three. And we take them home. We give them a great home life. We give them... Everything they need to grow up, a great schooling, they grow up and get great jobs and take care of their parents in their old age. Now, is there anybody in this room that would condemn me for adopting three children? I hope not. I hope you wouldn't self-righteously come to me and say, you should have taken all 50. I didn't have to take any. But it's just by my kind-heartedness and by my grace and what was in my heart that I chose three. Three are rescued. Three are saved. Three are taken. And there's nothing that caused that. I didn't have to do it. Nothing that caused it but my own grace, what was in my heart, my affection, what I decided to do. We wouldn't condemn a person for doing that. But yet somehow... When it comes to salvation, we try to condemn God. That God has rescued some of the orphans that were determined to go to hell. And he's adopted them into his family. And somehow now in our self-righteousness, we want to jump up and say, Oh, this is a terrible God that we serve. Well, here's the problem with humans. And our view of God and salvation is this. We've made such an idol out of personal choice. And we are not willing to bow to God's choice, which is actually further evidence of the power of sin in our own lives. We want our own choice to be the final say on what God does. And my friends, it doesn't work that way. God's choice is the final say on what you do. That's so uncomfortable. So be it.
It's the Bible. Our motive is this. We do not know how all this works. So we must pray for the salvation of all people, especially all kinds of people, even people that we don't like, even people in that community, you know what I'm talking about, that have chosen a sinful type of lifestyle that's absolutely appalling to us. But yet, we must pray. Pray for their salvation. Now, the passionate means, what are the means of salvation? He tells us here how it happens. And come to the knowledge of the truth. This is how it happens. Our motive must be the same as God's. We have a desire for people to be saved. And then the means that they are saved is for people to come to the knowledge of the truth. This means that people are saved by the supernatural work of God. Because God opens the minds of people so that they can understand with their heart. And that their heart will be stirred to an affection for Jesus. And they will trust Jesus and love him for all of eternity. That's what God does. The Bible says the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. The problem that unbelievers have, it's not intellectual. People are not dumb. It's not an intellectual problem. It's that the intellect has been blinded by Satan so that the mind cannot grasp the reality of spiritual things. And the mind being unwilling and unable to grasp it, the heart cannot be touched by it. And if the heart is not touched by it, then the will will never exercise itself to make a decision to trust Christ. That's how the soul works. And so this is a soul problem. And there's no way to solve this problem. You you can't argue people into this. It's not just logical. It's not illogical what we're telling them, but it's not just logical gymnastics that we have to walk them through. So just ease up on yourself a little bit. You're probably explaining the gospel just right. But the person you're talking to is just turning it around and asking you silly questions. And, you know, where did Cain get his wife? And where did the dinosaurs come from? And all this stuff. And so you're just saying, I don't know. And so then you're just like, well, I'm not going to witness anymore because I don't know all the answers to all these things. Well, I don't know all the answers either. Let me, give you, let me give you a little insight. The Apostle Paul didn't know all the answers either. Okay, so we're not called to know all the answers yet. We're called to be students of the Scripture. But you may not know all the answers yet. That's okay. You don't have to know them all yet. But you tell them what you do know. And, and you have to understand that it is the Holy Spirit of God that will have to take the blinders off of their mind so that suddenly it comes to them. Oh, my goodness, I see what's going on. And then as they begin to see how it works, then their heart will be touched and their affections are touched. Then the will is going to choose because you always choose that which you love. I love chocolate. And I'm going to choose it. Not only that, Guilt-free. I'm going to choose it. Do you know how much coffee somebody should drink in a day? I don't. And I'm not Googling it. I'm just going to do what I want to do. I just I love it, and I'm going to drink it. Now, Pastor, it's probably not good for your health. Says the person with potato chips loaded in your cart at Kroger's. You mind, you mind your card, I'll mind mine, lady. It's not just intellect, guys. It's not just that. It's the movement of the Spirit of God upon their heart, and that woos them to Jesus. The means that we're talking about here is just the gospel being preached, the gospel being presented, and the Spirit of God calling that person to repentance and faith. It is this knowledge that we have that's expressed by Christians, and it is the Spirit of God that interprets that knowledge and enlightens people's minds to that knowledge and illumines their minds so that they begin to grasp it. And then by the Spirit of God, they turn to Jesus and are saved. This is evangelistic praying. And Paul tells us here for every Christian and for the church, first of all then, I urge this. This is the first thing. The doctrine of this church is all messed up. But he says, first thing I want to I just urge you, Timothy, is to urge your people to do this one thing. To pray for all people.
and to pray that they would turn to Jesus and be saved. Because God takes absolutely no pleasure in the damnation of people. He does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. That when every, any person anywhere turns to Christ for salvation, that there's rejoicing in heaven. Jesus didn't come to condemn people. He came to save. And so pray to that end. Pray in that way. I'm going to ask everybody here right now just to bow your head for a moment. We you do that, just bow your heads. Many, many, many of you are followers of Jesus. I'm not going to say all because I, I know that can't be true. But many, many of you are followers of Christ. So I'm going to ask you to do something right now. There, there are people that, that don't follow Jesus that are, that are going to be among us here. There are people that don't follow Jesus that are, that are going to watch us on, on, on Facebook later. Would you take a moment right now and pray for those people? You may not know them by name. Or maybe you don't, do know some of them by name, but, but would you pray for them right now? And if you, could, if you could remember even what we talked about from John 16, maybe you don't remember it, but, but if you can, remember that. Just pray that they don't understand sin, Lord. Open their minds and their eyes so they see what sin really is. That it's an attack upon God. Would you pray for those people right now? Some of them here in our service. Some that will see this later. Some may watch this sometime in the future. Not even today. But would you pray for the Christian? Pray for them right now. About righteousness. They don't understand righteousness. They think that they're going to try to earn righteousness. They think that they're going to be able to accumulate enough righteousness. That God's going to let them into heaven. That's what they think. They don't understand the scripture that says there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious, righteous standard. They don't get it. They don't understand it. And they keep returning to the same thing of I'm going to try to earn my way. Christian, would you pray for them right now that that falsehood of Satan would be broken in their lives. And they would stop believing that. And would you pray for them that they would start believing that Jesus is their righteousness. That they connect to Jesus through a relationship with him. Then his righteousness is transferred to their account. And their unrighteousness is transferred to his. And that he's paid for their unrighteousness on the cross. Pray that they could see that. They grasp it with their minds. Christian, are you praying? Pray. Would you pray also that the reality of judgment crosses their mind today? That they would grasp that truth that it is appointed unto people to die once and then after that is the judgment. Pray that God would take away the falsehoods of the thoughts of reincarnation or the thoughts that God doesn't judge or all those false thoughts, the false doctrine of this world, the, the falsehood about God that's talked about in our culture all the time. Pray that that be taken away and the truth would come home to their heart and life. Are you praying, Christian? Are you praying? And dear Christian, I want to ask you also to expand in your own life, your praying. And if you haven't started, blesseveryhome.com. You can talk to Pastor Joe about that after the service. But expand your, your mission field. Expand your vision a little bit beyond just those who are in your family. I know you've got plenty in your family to be praying for. I know you're like me. There are plenty of them in my own family I'm trying to pray for. But there are others that have nobody. And would you just make that commitment and begin to pray for them? Now, you're here today, some of, some of you are here today, and you're not a follower of Jesus. I want to ask you to consider something just right now. Would you consider the fact that you 
have lived your life in animosity toward God until now. You say, well, I'm not that bad of a person. Even that statement is a statement of animosity toward God. God says different. You're saying he's a liar. God says that there's none righteous. God says all have sinned. You're saying, well, I'm not that bad. Again, you're making statements that are contrary to what God has said about you. So even, even at this point, as long as you hold on to that statement, do you realize that you're in sin? You're in a state of rebellion against God. Would you understand that? But, but you know what? You, you can come to this point right now. I mean, r- right where you're sitting, if God is stirring your heart and causing you to think about these things, then you can come to that point right now and you say, you know what? That's right. I have lived for myself. I haven't been living for God. I've lived however I wanted to. Most of the decisions of my life have been that way. Jesus calls you then to repentance. He says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Repentance means what? You've got to drop that. You've got to turn away from that way of living. The kind of living in which you're in control and you live life how you want to and you live life on your own terms and by your own philosophy, directing your own life your own way, it's godlessness. It's Xing God out and saying, I don't really need him to be the center of my life. You have to drop that way of living. God doesn't save anybody that refuses to repent. So repentance means to drop that, to let it go, and now turn to Jesus. And I want to ask you to, to look at Jesus in your mind for just a moment. Look at Jesus. He's, he's hanging on a cross. Why? Here's why. For everyone that would believe on him and follow him as Lord and Master now, rather than themselves, for everyone who would do that, All of your sin is being paid for on that cross. God cannot be just and just let you go. After all that you've done against him, what kind of judge would he be if he just let you go? He can't just let you go. Sin has to be paid for. There's a penalty that must be paid. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. But look at him on the cross. What is he doing there? It's not just nails in his hands. It's not just the agony of the thirst. What he's doing there is bearing the sins of his followers. And the wrath of heaven is descending upon him rather than his followers. Wouldn't you like to follow him wouldn't you like to belong to him because he's paying for your sins there look at him in the tomb three days and see his resurrection what is that about what does that mean it means that the sin he's paid for has been accepted in the courtroom of heaven you see if he had failed to pay for your sin then he'd still be in the grave but it's verified it's been he's been vindicated he's been authenticated by his resurrection from the dead and being resurrected he's proving that he's lord over sin he's lord over death he's lord over everything and so the choice is before you will you give your heart and life over to him Now, I would warn you that it is free. You don't have to earn it, but it will cost you everything. Your life will never be the same. You will be under new management from this point on. You will have a king in charge of your life. You will be called on to make different decisions. You'll be called on to get rid of old attitudes. You will be summoned before the Lord in order to have life change. If you don't want him messing in your life, walk away. 
But if you want the offer of forgiveness and salvation and freedom from the judgment of hell, run to Jesus. Look to him, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. Father, we pray your work and movement in the lives of those who are treading the edge of the cliff of hell. Father, as the ground gives way beneath them, and as they tiptoe just on the edge of eternity today, I pray, Father, that you would arrest their hearts. God, enable them now to flee to the cross where it's safe. And I pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.